So from celebration, let's talk about suffering. <laughs> you know, uh, I was thinking about that. I was like, you know, some transitions just, uh, there's just no, you, like a Band-Aid, you just got to rip it off. So let's just go for it. Um, so yeah, so this passage today, we're, we're talking a lot about suffering. I mean, that seems pretty clear in case you didn't, you know, catch it as those verses are being read. Um, it's pretty much littered throughout this section of, of scripture. Uh, verse 12, he talks about a fiery trial uh, as it comes upon you to test you. Verse 13, he says, talks about Christ's sufferings. Uh, verse 14, talks about being insulted for the name of Christ. 15, I know you suffer. Uh, 16, as anyone suffers. Verse 17, judgment. Verse 18, talks about being scarcely saved. And then finally, verse 19, again, he talks about those who suffer. So suffice it to say, we're going to be talking about suffering today. Now, if you think about the context that led up to this, it's easy for us to just assume at a time like that Peter's kind of like just totally shifting gears here. Like he was just talking about um, this. He, he just made this awesome statement in verse 11 about the people who have gifts of the spirit, using them to uh, strengthen the body of Christ strengthen one another with in the in, by giving these gifts of God, using them for one another's benefit. And he says, in order that in everything, this is verse eleven. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. He even gives an amen there, and like so, it's easy for us to kind of think like, okay, like now he's totally shifting gears, because if you think about. One of the big highlights that we talked about from First Peter, you know, we, we highlighted in, in like how when he started out, he talks about the church being a set apart holy nation that's living in kind of this exiled world. This We're kind of living in exile as we worship God, try to follow God, and the rest of the people kind of are looking at us like, oh, you're weird. And we talked about how what that means to live as an exiled people and how we're supposed to live, talking about submitting to authority and following those who by showing our devotion to God, showing our love for God in the way that we respond to people who have authority in us, in the way that we treat people, in the way that we respond to one another and treat one another. In chapter three, he talks about wives and the ways that you show the love of Christ by the way that you submit and, and follow your husband and, and the way that you can point others to Jesus Christ and the way that we treat one another in our marriages. I don't know about you guys, but like I can attest to the fact that Megan all the time and the way that she serves me, not that Megan is my servant, not that Megan has to like do everything I need and, you know, do all this stuff for me, but because she joyfully does it because she's always there serving me and always taking care of our household, I am constantly finding myself thanking God, thanking Jesus Christ for her in my life. Not because I think she's anything so great. Well, she is so great, but because I think, because I know why she does it. Because I know the change in her life that God has done through her life and who he's made her to be and who Jesus has made her to be. And that's why I'm so blessed to have such an amazing wife because of who Jesus has made her into. Not because I deserve it. I don't. I can tell you that many times. I don't deserve it a lot. But Megan always is pointing me to Jesus, to thanking him, to glorifying him, worshiping him. And then we talked about, and then it talks about the gifts. Like we talked about last week, we, we hit on those, like the gifts of God and using those to serve one another and build the church up and how the church can be built by us serving one another, by us using our gifts to help one another, to push one another, to exalt, to like encourage one another, teach one another. So where is this suffering coming from? But the reality is if you were reading really closely, this has actually been a theme that Peter's also been hitting on. Let me highlight for you real quick a few passages through each chapter where he talks about suffering. In chapter 1, verse 7, uh, no, sorry, I'm going to start with verse, uh, verse 6. And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, he talks about, um, in verse 22, he's talking about Jesus. He says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not there, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So we see suffering there as well. Chapter three. We're not. There we go. He says in verse nine, he says, "Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called." Later in verse. 14, he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And then finally, we see in verse, in chapter 4, he even started out, verse 1, he says, therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has, te- has ceased from sin. So, this idea of suffering isn't just something that Peter's just all of a sudden like, oh, let's talk about suffering. It's been something that he's been referencing as part of this call to live as a holy people, to live as a set-apart people, to live as a holy nation, the church. It's been part of it throughout. He just now is focusing, he takes his time to like really focus in, okay, what does this mean? And as we look at this passage... There's going to be three questions that I really want to try to hit on for us as we study this passage. And I know what it says in those notes. You can kind of, you can go, you can, those are, I mean, those are two things I put down there. But then as I was, you know, studying more, I do this a lot as I, you know, continually study, continually craft my sermon. A lot of it comes up later and I change things. There's three questions and none of them are listed on those notes, just so you know. So you can write this down on the bottom below that. The three questions I really want us to tackle are one what is suffering what what does suffering look like in this what is peter describing suffering as two what is the purpose of suffering what is the purpose of suffering and then three how should i respond to peter's teaching on suffering so those are gonna be the questions that we're gonna try to kind of tackle as we study this passage as we dig through what this passage is teaching, what this passage is saying, what we are to pull away. I'm going to kind of be focusing on those three questions as we strive to just pull the truth away that I think the Spirit would have us pull away. So let's dive in. Verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So, Here's Peter saying, calling us beloved because he loves us, and he's talking to the people of Christ. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Now, <clears throat> this is the first mention in this passage that we're studying like about kind of suffering. He calls it a fiery trial. Now, right away in our minds, at least in my human mind, when I think of a fiery trial, I don't think of anything very pleasant, right? And I don't think of anything like just like, you know, uh, like a slap in the wrist, okay? I think it's something pretty extreme. And it's easy for us to right away assume that what he's warning against, that what he's warning this church about, especially in the context of who he was writing to, that maybe he's talking about like really severe persecution here. We know it happened. We know it wasn't like, you know, unusual to happen. We see it in the book of Acts. Christians were beaten. Christians were mocked. Christians were persecuted. They were even killed. We know this was going on. So the Immediate assumption would be to think, well, by fiery trial, he's talking about like heavy-duty persecution, like really severe stuff. And I'm here to tell you, if that's right away where you want to jump to, I want you to pull back a little bit because that's actually probably not necessarily what Peter is saying. Well, that type of persecution definitely might be included. Peter's not only referencing the type of persecution that happens when you're beaten, imprisoned, or even threatened to be killed. Peter's talking about something that actually, if you look at the whole context of Scripture, there's a theme that is present about this idea of a fiery trial. In fact, remember when I read chapter from chapter 1, what he said there, he said, so that the test of genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise. When he's talking about suffering there, he talked about this a trial by fire, he talks about gold being refined by fire. This fiery trial thing 
wasn't necessarily meant to refer to like an extreme amount of like heavy duty persecution that like someone's being burned at the stake or something crazy like that. It's referring to this process that the Old Testament used to describe sanctification. When we're being made holy, there was this idea of refiner's fire. We even have a little chorus that if you've, if you've been in the church a while, you've probably sung it at some point, like that song that's called Refiner's Fire. This idea being that, you know, when you have a precious metal like gold, you know, they would, I, I don't know, I'm not a smith, I'm not a blacksmith, I don't really know exactly how the process works. I just know there's a fire involved, <laughs> and somehow through the purification process, in the end, you end up with a piece of gold that is more pure gold than it was to begin with. You're ridding out the stuff that's not of actual gold. And you make it through that refiner's fire, you make it something pure gold. And this was something that the Old Testament used to kind of describe Christians, or not Christians, but followers of God, you know, people who were trying to like strive to be more like God, this process that they would have to go through of like a refiner's fire, like being stripped away from the things that were not of God. And so this idea of fiery trial isn't just meant to refer to that kind of extreme kind of persecution, but maybe it's meant to refer to any kind of testing or something that's happening to us that is meant to strip us away from the things that isn't focused on God. And what does Peter say about that? He says, don't be surprised when this comes upon you to test you, to purify you, as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, For Christians, this shouldn't be something that's so uncommon. It shouldn't be something that's so misplaced that we're like, whoa, God, what the heck? Like, I thought she loved me. Why am I having to go through this? We shouldn't be surprised. It shouldn't be something strange. It should be happening. We know it's going to happen. We're told it's going to be happening. Then Peter continues, he says, But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. <clears throat> now, again, describing, okay, so what is the suffering that Peter's talking about? All right? He says, talks about sharing Christ's sufferings. Now, again, because of our semantic language and how we are, it's very easy to jump to right away, again, the extreme. Well, how did Christ suffer? Well, he was beaten. He was bloody whipped. And then he was, he was hung and crucified on a cross. Those are all true statements about how Christ suffered. Now, when you really dig into the language of how this phrase, another way to say this is the sufferings is, but rejoice in so far as you share in the sufferings of Christ. And the idea being not so much digging into sharing the exact method of suffering as Jesus, but suffering for the same reason that Jesus Christ suffered. Why did Jesus suffer? Why was, he per- why was he ultimately put to death? Because he declared himself to be the son of God. Because he declared himself to be the way to heaven. He declared himself to be the one true king of the Jews. He declared himself, he just declared truth about who he was, the son of God. He was God in the flesh. And because of those declarations, he was ultimately put to death. So sharing in Christ's sufferings doesn't necessarily mean, doesn't exclude, it doesn't mean that you won't suffer in the ways that Christ suffered. But it doesn't mean that necessarily you're going to suffer in that same way, but it means you're suffering because you also are declaring Jesus to be who he is. When you partake in the sufferings of Christ, it is saying you are partaking in sufferings because you are declaring Jesus to be who he is that he is the son of God, that he is sitting at the right hand of the father, that he is ultimately going to come back and bring judgment upon this world, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the father except through him. When you declare these truths and you suffer because these truths are defining your life, then you are partaking in the sufferings of Christ. You are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And what does Peter say of what to do about this? He says, but rejoice when you share these sufferings. He says that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, rejoice now that you're getting the chance to suffer for Christ's sake because guess what? The fact that you're getting to suffer for Christ's sake means you're just going to be rejoicing all that much more later 
When the glory of Christ is revealed, how much more will your joy be? How much more will you be glad? How much more you will, be, you will you be rejoicing because you were, had the opportunity to rejoice in your following of Christ and for your sufferings with Christ now here on earth? Verse 14 says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you are insulted for the name of Christ. Now again, this is even a further, I think, explanation of what Peter is talking about when he's talking about suffering in this context. What he's defining as suffering. Okay, He's obviously, I'm not discounting like the idea of severe persecution. Like if you ever, ever have to face it, whether it be death, whether it be threats, whether it be you know, beatings, whatever it might be. But Peter's talking about much more than just that. He's talking about the idea of being insulted for the name of Christ, being ostracized for the name of Christ, being criticized because of what you stand for, because of what you're about, because of the words that are coming out of your mouth. When you make a stand for Jesus, any insults that come your way, Peter wants wants you to know one thing. You are blessed. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been made fun of or mocked or teased or ridiculed or made to look like a fool in front of a bunch of people. When you're in those moments, the last thing in your mind is, man, man, I'm so blessed. That's not what pops in our human minds. It's not what pops in my human mind. I don't know about you guys. You know, you shrink up. You want to kind of disappear. You want to get angry. Maybe worse, you want to give in? You want to surrender your stance? But Peter says you are blessed. Blessed means, like, literally, like, you're elevated at that moment. God is elevating you in the moment. You are so special. And why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In other words, you are giving evidence of the fact, if you are being insulted by Jesus Christ, this is, this is key, one of the key points you need to take away from today. If you are being insulted by Jesus Christ, it is evidence that the Holy Spirit lives inside you. One of the evidences of of the Holy Spirit being inside of you is that you will be insulted for the name of Christ. It's a blessing. Not because it's fun to be insulted, but because of what it means. Because of what, it's, what, it, what you are saying. You are saying the Holy Spirit resides in me and therefore I'm going to make a stand for the name of Christ. Even if it means I'm going to be faced with ridicule. Even if it means I'm going to, fa- I'm going to be ostracized. I'm going to be cut off from people's lives. Even if it means whatever kind of oppression or insult or whatever you might be facing. I'm going to make the stand because the Holy Spirit resides within me. That's a blessing, Peter is saying. You're blessed because you're giving evidence to this fact. And Peter continues. He kind of gives a verse of kind of contrast. Again, like, I, 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 I like that we're kind of, the reason why I wanted to tackle the question of what is suffering, because I think Peter, for some of this, is kind of trying to define it himself for, you, for us, for our sake. Verse 15, he says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or as a meddler. In other words, Peter's not naive here. He's not saying the only type of suffering is this type of suffering that we're talking about is the suffering of Christ. Right? Suffering is a real part of the world that everybody experiences, Christian or non-Christian alike. And as I was kind of studying, like in my own mind, like as I was breaking this down, there's three, there's three kind of like categories of suffering that I would place most things in now. You can place them however you want, but these are the three categories I would place suffering in. There's a type of suffering that we're talking about today, which Peter is talking about, which is the sufferings for Christ's sake, meaning you are directly suffering as a direct result of your stand saying that I stand for Christ. I stand for Jesus. I believe in him. I believe he is the son of God, whether it's by your words and actions, however it is that you're expressing that to people, any kind of suffering you face from that, from them, from being overworked, from being overtired because you're, 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 you're giving your all to Jesus from any kind of sickness you might have because you're just pouring everything out to him. 
those type of things, I believe, are what, Peter, what Peter's getting at. There's a middle category um, that when talking about, I want to be very careful here. Because the last thing I want anybody to walk away from is thinking that I'm talking about something and dismissing anybody's suffering. Because suffering is real. Suffering, All suffering, I believe, deserves our response of compassion, love, support, standing alongside. But there's a middle level of suffering that I would categorize as, as just the, the, the suffering that results of living in a fallen world, fallen creation. Suffering that everybody experiences. Not, not saying it's not real, not saying it's not valid, but suffering that everybody encounters, Christians and non-Christians alike, that isn't distinctly a result of, because you're a Christian, this is why this is happening, because you're having to suffer for this. We're, I, we could be talking about the loss of loved ones. We could be talking about sickness, severe sickness. We could be talking about injuries. Uh, we could be talking about like loss of work, financial crisis, weather disasters, you know, a bunch of things that could be happening that are real things that people suffer from, Christians and non-Christians alike. But I would categorize those as kind of a middle thing that Peter's not necessarily talking about because they're not happening to you directly because you're a follower of Christ. Again, hear me clearly. I'm not saying that that means we just like, oh, you're not really suffering for Christ, so you'll get over it. That's not our response whatsoever. I hope you hear me say that. I hope, hope you guys are following me in this because I don't want to have everyone like, you know, stop listening because you think I'm dismissing any kind of hardship that you've gone through with your life and telling you all oh, it doesn't really matter. It does matter. I, I'm, I've, you know, I've lost loved ones myself. I know it matters. Um, but I'm just trying to like separate that a little bit from the type of suffering that Peter's necessarily describing in this passage. Is everybody with me on that? Like, okay. And then there's this third type of suffering that Peter refers to here in verse 15. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now this should be kind of pretty clear. He's talking about a third type of suffering, which is still real suffering that happens, but it happens as a direct result of just the dumb choices you make. Or I, maybe a better way to say it would be the sinful choices you make. Now, obviously, for murders and thieves, it's pretty obvious how they suffer. All right? Hopefully part of their souls eaten up is, you know, they give in to whatever temptation they give. But more so, you know, whether it's imprisonment, you know, separation from family, possibly facing death, whatever it might be. There's some real suffering that consequences that happen to those people. Evildoers, wrongdoers, people who are committing things just out of spite, out of hate, out of anger. You know, for those people, there's some real suffering. Sometimes it's broken relationships. Sometimes it's, um, again, being, you can be ostracized for those type of things because you're just like not a good person or you weren't a good person in those choices that you made. Um, or as a meddler, and meddler was a little bit of a funny word to kind of chase after and, and find and what exactly they're getting on. There's a lot of different thoughts and ideas of exactly what's the best way to describe meddler. Some people use the word embezzler. Um, others, were, the, the, the consistent kind of theme was someone who's basically committing some kind of fraud. Somebody who's just kind of lying to you. Like whether it's, whether it's someone who's actually doing something like, like not necessarily like maybe it's someone with your money, but maybe it's just somebody who had your trust that you were supporting, you were leaning on, and they just let you down because they just dismissed your, your friendship. They dismissed your uh, whatever it was, and they just kind of betrayed you in some type of way. Peter says, but let none of you suffer this way. In other words, don't make these mistakes because this isn't the type of suffering I'm talking about for you to encounter. These type of sufferings, you're getting because of what you did, not because you're showing everyone that you are a follower of Christ. And then Peter sandwiches in verse 16, going back to what I would categorize the first type of suffering, the one he's talking about. He says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now, 
Again, you read that verse, it can be really quick to kind of be worried. Yeah, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let them not be ashamed. Okay, that's pretty, you know, consistent. That's easy. What, what you might miss, though, is the fact that it's a very significant thing that Peter uses the word Christian when he writes that out. Because you got to understand, in that context, in that setting, Christian wasn't a word necessarily that the church owned. It was a word that was being used from the outside pointing to the church, kind of as a ridicule. It first came up in the, in the church of Antioch, Syria, where, where, where the church was really for the first time starting to explode. Like we had the Jerusalem church when the Holy Spirit came in Pentecost, that church grew, right? It grew, it grew. We, we read throughout the first six, eight chapters of Acts, how God added it to their number daily. God added it to their number daily. It was growing, but it wasn't spreading necessarily. It wasn't really going outside of Jerusalem until persecution happened. And then they were forced to scatter. And then you see growth happening in Samaria. It takes a vision for Peter to finally consent to even sharing with a Gentile for the first time. It was the church in Antioch, Syria, which is the first church that actually takes it upon themselves willingly and say, hey, we should start sending people all over the world and telling them about Jesus. They're the ones who send out Paul and, and, uh, and Barnabas for the first time on the first mission trip. And it's because this church is acting in such a radical way, actually doing the work of Christ, actually trying to live the lives of Christ, that the people around them start ridiculing and calling them Christians, little Christ. Like, look at you guys trying to be like Jesus. You talk like Jesus. You teach like Jesus. You teach the same things he teaches. You're trying to, like, do the same things he was doing. Like, look at you guys. It was meant as a ridicule. And here's Peter using it as something that's meant to be like, yeah, there's something distinct about this type of follower of Christ. Someone who's actually not just someone who's sitting in an, in the, the church gatherings, just kind of sitting there, like kind of going along, listening, okay, yeah, great, and then going about their regular lives, but someone who's actually chasing after this lifestyle of actually being called a little Christ because of the way that you're living and surrendering your life, because you're actually trying to mimic the life of Christ, who gave up everything in his words, in the way he talked, in what he, what, in what he, was, in the, in what he was teaching, in his actions, the way he loved people and the way he served people. Are we trying to be like Christ? And if you suffer for those reasons as you're trying to be like Christ, Peter says, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Because the reality is, if we know, if you've ever been in suffering, sometimes there is shame that comes with suffering, especially in the type of suffering that was in category three, right? If you ever have to suffer because of a direct consequence of something you did wrong, I know I've, I mean, like, maybe not to the extent of those four things that Peter lists off. At least I don't think I've ever murdered anyone. Um, But, you know, there is some shame that comes with that type of suffering, right? Like, you feel it because you know that you did wrong. And you know what you're experiencing now just feels shameful because, like, man, I shouldn't be in this place. And I'm here because of my own doing. And Peter wants to make sure that Christians don't feel that same way. Of this. There's no shame that should come from suffering when you are suffering because you are following Jesus. When you suffer, when you're following from Jesus, instead, let him glorify God in that name. Let him just sing praises to him. Let him just exalt his name. Proclaim him even more. Let the world know exactly why you're doing and why you're suffering right now. Let them all hear. I'm going to read verse 17 and 18 together. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? These these two verses... um, kind of hard to tackle at first it really takes a lot of unpacking like for me anyways to get my mind around what exactly peter was saying here um what i really get what what i really took away is this idea because he says for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of god you start with that phrase right there now we all know at least if you've 
if you've read scripture, if you read, if you read it throughout, with, throughout the Bible, there's this promised time of final judgment that is to come. It seems pretty clear. At some point in time, God will render judgment on all the living and the dead and declare them righteous or unrighteous, and we know what happens to the unrighteous and what their final destination is. It seems pretty clear that scripture teaches this final judgment idea. And yet here's Peter saying, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So he's saying he's going to beginning with the household of God, meaning he's beginning with the Christians. So there's two ways to go to, to look at this. Either you can think to yourselves, well, that just means, I guess, that in the final judgment, like all the Christians get to come first. And like every single Christian gets told, yeah, 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 and down the list, right? And then, <laughs> then everybody else comes and gets theirs, Okay. That's one way you can look at it, but I don't really see that being consistent whatsoever with what this passage is saying because the key word there is for it is time now. In other words, it is time now that judgment is beginning. So what does that mean then? What I really think Peter's getting at, what all the scholars that I was reading about, what their interpretations seem to be getting at, is that what Peter's saying essentially is our judgment... Now, we all, now, if you know the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you've heard the gospel explained to you, you know that none are righteous except through our faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? None are made righteous except through him. So in reality, what we deserve is the same thing everybody else deserves. Okay? Condemnation, damnation, being sent away from him. It's only through the blood of Christ that we have any hope whatsoever to be saved from that judgment. So the idea of judgment beginning now is this idea that our, again, putting in context with what Peter's talking about, he's talking about our sufferings, our sufferings for the sake of Christ. Essentially what Peter is saying here is these sufferings that you're enduring by standing for Jesus is the judgments that you are having to endure for being in part of this fallen world. It is the way of that we are receiving judgment now in our sufferings now so that we don't have to receive the judgment everyone else has coming their way later. He says that if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? In other words, for those who aren't suffering now for the sake of Christ, for those who aren't suffering now for the sake of the gospel, what's their judgment going to be? For those who aren't enduring their judgment here on earth by living for Jesus, by making a stand for Christ, what does that mean for them when judgment comes for them? Verse 18, when he quotes that verse, he says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, this idea of like scarcely saved meaning, only, like I said, the only reason why we're saved is because of Jesus. If it wasn't for Jesus, we wouldn't have any, ch- any chance of being saved. And even as being a follower of Christ, we still must suffer in this world because we are proving to God that we are trying to put to death our old self and become new. He says, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? In other words, if the righteous are barely saved, if the Christians are barely saved, then what is to come for those who aren't followers of Christ when when judgment comes for them? And finally, he wraps it all up with verse 19. And this kind of puts a summary on these, last, on, these first, on these last two verses. He says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We talked about kind of like that question of what is the purpose of, what is the purpose of suffering? Well, part of the purpose of suffering is demonstrating to God that we are entrusting our soul to him. We are entrusting him for our salvation. We are saying to our faithful creator, we are choosing to follow you. We are choosing to make our lives about you. We are choosing to endure this suffering for you because we entrust that by doing this, you will save us. It's part of the gospel story. It's part of our response to the gospel. It's saying 
that we believe in Jesus Christ. Therefore, by suffering for his namesake, we are showing that we are entrusting you, Jesus. We are entrusting our Father in heaven with our souls, trusting that he is going to save us. That one day, we will be found righteous in his eyes, not because of what we've done, but because of what we have believed, because of our faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. This passage, or that, that section right there, is meant to mirror, by the way, First um, Peter 2, when he talked about Jesus' suffering. I read that earlier. It says, verse 23, when he was reviled, speaking, talking about Jesus, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus endured the suffering that he did here on earth because he entrusted, he trusted the Father above. He knew that the Father was going to place him in the place of exaltation, the place at the right, his right, at the right side of the throne next to the Father because God was going to judge him justly. He trusted that, and that is why he was willing to endure all the suffering that he did because he trusted God the Father perfectly. If we trust our Father perfectly, we will welcome, we will endure with glad hearts, with rejoicing hearts, any suffering that comes for the sake of Jesus Christ. So we respond to suffering by rejoicing, by feeling blessed, because we know what that means. We purpose of suffering is meant to give us glad hearts. The purpose of suffering is meant to give us reassurance that we are doing what is right, that we are enduring what we need to because we are entrusting God the Father with our hearts. So how should we respond? That last question I put in there, how should I, how, how should I respond to Peter's teaching on suffering? I'm going to be honest with, with, with you guys. Like, as I was reading this, I was really um, struggling a lot with thinking about like, this idea of suffering and, and what suffering looks like, what it looks like to actually be insulted and ostracized and like, cut off and like, be really persecuted for the, for the sake of Christ. Because as I look at my own life, as I look at lives of believers around me throughout my time in the church from whether it's junior high, high school, throughout being a youth pastor, I don't see a lot of suffering happening on Christians then. We live in, we live in, we're so blessed. We are blessed to be in a culture where we have so much religious freedom, you know, and that same, um, the, the, the catch is that same government, the same nation that gave us this religious freedom that, we are blessed to have that gives us the right to gather without any fear, which is awesome. Like, I'm not dismissing that in any way. That same nation that gave us that right also gave us this uh, antidote of this idea of the pursuit of happiness. And now, 200 and almost 50 years later, with technological advances, with cultural advances and everything like that, what we end up stuck with, I believe, is a church that worships freely, gathers freely but lives for just happiness lives for comfortability lives for um, kind of a happy medium of just finding a a good way a, a good just comfortable life and I'm not saying this with any kind of condemnation because honestly I was I was convicted of myself I, I was talking with Daniel, Will, and I was like, I'm just looking at myself. I spent eight years as a youth pastor at Grace Church. And I was thinking about those eight years. And for seven of them, I have a really hard time pointing to something and say, yeah, this is where I suffered for God, for Christ. Um, I mean, I'm sure if you had asked me during the time, I'd probably point to, oh, you know, I've 
had a lot of times where I've come back from a mission trip really tired. It was really rough. Or, you know, like the stress of, of preparing a, a five-day camp for fourth through eighth graders, you know, that's, that's, that's tough. That's hard. It's a lot of work. And I suffered. Um, I'd point to those things, and I'm not dismissing those things as things that weren't good, um, that didn't have great results and great blessings that came from them. Um, but I'm just convicted of my own self as saying, like, when did I truly suffer? And honestly, for me, I don't know if I've experienced true suffering until um, 2014. Um, I'm going to share with you guys a little bit. Some of you know a good chunk of this. Um, some of you might not know anything at all if you don't know me very well. Um, honestly, I knew at some point in my life I'd probably be sharing this from a testimony standpoint. I didn't know if it'd be this soon. But I talked with Megan and um, I got her blessing to do it. And um, really why I'm doing this because I'm really comfortable with you guys. Um, I love you guys. I, I trust you guys. Um, I'm letting you guys in on a portion of my life that honestly like, isn't necessarily over. So I'm hoping and trusting with you with this information of knowing that if you're ever in a uh, time with me where, where this person that I'm going to be talking about is around, that you're not going to make her feel in any way awkward or like you know something now about her that I've shared with you. Um, but two and a half years ago, in 2014, um, Megan and I made the decision to um, open our home um, and take in a 15-year-old girl. Um, her name is Audie. And um, dramatically changed um, what life on mission meant to me. And I was a youth pastor. I was someone who I thought was giving everything to Jesus because I was called to do so back in 2004 or three at a summer camp. So I thought I was giving all to Christ. It wasn't until I truly started giving all to Christ that I had a new perspective for what that meant. Um, we had been counseling her for a while. She was, she'd come over here um, with her sister, living with her aunt and uncle because of a really broken situation. And things weren't, and after a couple years living with her aunt and uncle, things weren't going well again. And there was a lot of things that led up to the decision, but we we decided to bring her into our home and have her stay with us. Um, At first, you know, I arrogantly thought to myself, well, we want to bring her in because I can fix her. Because I know all this stuff. I know, you know, I've been working with youth for all this time. Like, I've been studying, studying some biblical counseling stuff, all these different things. Like, she comes live with, lives with me and Megan. Like, it's all going to be better. It took about two months for that to get broken down and me realize, like, <laughs> you're an idiot. Uh, I still remember, like, after we brought her in, we were committed to her staying with us, uh, like, two months into it, um, we tried to start her in school, and that just blew up for just all the different stuff that she had going on with her. She couldn't handle it, um, just emotionally, like mentally, anything. Uh, so we, me and Megan went on a walk to decide what we were going to do as far as like deciding to homeschool or whatever. And I remember sitting down with her at a park. I think it was actually at the back of the church. They had a little playground there. And sitting down with Megan and saying, for the first time, realizing, being like, you know, I think God's making it pretty clear to us that uh, we're not doing this because we think we're going to have a big victory here with Audi. Like, we can't do it for that reason. If we we were doing it because we pridefully think that we were going to fix her, then we're not going to be able to survive this because we're just going to get disappointed over and over and over again. I was like, but if we're doing it because we believe firmly this is what Jesus has called us to do, called us to be, um, and we're doing it for the strict purpose and purpose alone of saying that we are just following Christ and what he has commanded us to be, then however she turns out, we will be reassured in knowing that we were doing the mission of Christ, that we were following his guidelines for us, we were following his Holy Spirit's leading on our lives. Um, and it was hard. We, 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 she was with us for 
little over two years. Um, I can't tell you how many nights um, I would, uh, man, I didn't think I was going to get this emotional. Sorry. Um, I can't tell you how many nights I would be in bed with my wife, and my wife is just broken, just crying in tears because she's exhausted from doing all that was involved with Audie, with, with homeschooling, with talking, with trying to, like, break this girl out of this, like, hard shell that she was in from feeling like you're just constantly, like, my wife, because she was the one, I was working, um, whether it was when I was at church or even, like, shortly after that, I started working at Enterprise, too. You know, I'm working throughout the days, and so my wife is the one there every day, like, just pouring herself out every day and getting nothing in return. So, of course, by the time I'm home and, you know, we're, we're, we're getting in bed, like, she's just, like, so in need of, like, that reassurance. And, and so I'm emptying myself out to Megan and, and having to trust in, and having really no one there to, like, being pulled on for me except, the, the, just my faith and, my, and my, my belief that what we were doing was what was necessary. Um. And I, I talk about this now because um, not as a place of, of saying, hey, look at me. We did so great. Because, um, honestly, we probably did a lot of things wrong as we stumbled through that for two years. Um, and ultimately, like, you know, Audie, she's still a part of our lives, though very limited. Um, she moved out when she was 18. And then um, some of you know she moved back in uh, last uh the spring, like May or, or February, I think. Um, she lived with us for about eight months more again. She came back because she was in financial crisis, and we were just, again, just wanting to love her and just wanting to give her a place. And um, and as we continued to try to pursue her and pursue a deeper relationship with us, she decided that wasn't for her, and she moved out again like a month ago. Um, I say all that. Not to brag, um, but to tell you that for myself, as I look at suffering, when I look at what that means, I'm very truly convicted in the fact that even today, as I look at my life, I don't think that this is a real, like, outside of that time in my life, I, I have a hard time pointing to too many examples when that was a real part of my life. Probably last year when we were going through the discipline situation, but other than that, like, how many times in my life that I feel like I've been sacrificing enough. And that's really where I want to push us to. It's not a place of shame, not a place of saying, well, go look for suffering. Go look for ways to just make yourself miserable. That's not what I'm trying to say. Um, but what I'm trying to say, what I'm, trying to, what I'm being convicted of is if there's times in my life, there's times like right now where I'm looking at my life and being like, you know, I just don't really see myself experiencing suffering. It's not that I need to go look for something that is just like, just go, like, you know, rock my world again. Um, but it makes me question, so am I really sacrificing enough? Am I really giving enough if, if I'm not experiencing suffering right now? Am I really, like, giving up enough of my own pride, giving up own, by my own happiness? If the, most, if the most I'm suffering is because, you know, it'd really be nice to be able to go out to dinner a couple more times this month, but that 10% that I got to give to the church really holds me back from living the luxuriously life that I want. I don't, I don't know, that. I don't think that's suffering for me. I, I, if, if the most suffering I'm experiencing is, man, you know, it really sucks that we had to miss the Seahawks game last week because we had to come to church, but there you go, Jesus, I, I suffered for my time with you. Then, you know, I don't know if that's the type of suffering we're looking for. I'm just challenging all of us as I'm challenging myself. Is there more that we should be given? Is there more that we should be given to him? And that brings me back to the place of the gospel. It brings, and that's where I want to loop this around. I don't want to loop this around. It's just something where Nathan's trying to shame anybody. Nathan's trying to like point the fingers at anybody. 
loop it back to the gospel and what the gospel message is all about. The gospel message is all about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the creator, the author of creation. Coming to this world, giving up everything, everything of who he was. He was literally God. He is literally God. And he gave that all up to live this life on earth. The son of a carpenter. And ultimately laying his down in life, his laying down his own life for doing nothing wrong. Why? For us. Because he trusted the Father and he knew that this was the only way we could be saved. So in response, what are you going to respond with? Are we really going to be in response to that, wanting to cling to our own comfort all the time, wanting to cling to our own happiness? Or are we going to be responding with saying, Jesus, teach me to give up more. Teach me to give up everything. We sing these songs. We just sang, sang the song that just said, you know, t- t- like if, if, if all of you, is, it means less, like get, take everything. We sing that song. We sing songs about sacrifice all the time and like wanting to lay it all out. But I challenge you, if suffering is not a real part of your life, I don't believe you're laying enough down for the sake of the cross. I challenge that to myself. I challenge that to myself a lot last night. I don't think I'm laying down enough if suffering isn't a real part of my life. Not that I want a miserable life, because I don't think it leads to a miserable life. Megan and I will both tell you that while it was definitely the hardest period of our life to date. It brought us closer to each other. It brought us closer to God. Again, like I said, it really taught me about what um, and what he's capable of with me, even. I mean, I don't, sometimes I look at him like, so during the midst of that, I, you know, transitioned jobs. I transitioned churches, started helping Daniel with a church plant. Um, all while doing this and, and still had enough, you know, night after night after night, still had enough just gumption to go, go, go. Was that because of me? No. Was that because I was depending on him? Absolutely. And man, that was such a rewarding time. Even if on the earthly sale, it wasn't rewarding whatsoever. But on the biblical level, for what it did for my relationship with God, for what it's teaching me, what it's continually teaching me, continually challenging me with, it was so rewarding. I'm not asking you to be miserable in life because or because that's what it's all about, is being miserable. I'm asking you to give up more. I'm asking you to encounter suffering because I believe that ultimately will bring us more joy, more encouragement, a deeper relationship with Christ, that can't be had just by listening to a bunch of smarter people that you think are smarter, people you think are the spiritually elite or whatever, teach you. Can't be gathered from just reading a bunch of books. A deeper relationship with Christ, I believe wholeheartedly that we so desperately need, can only be had by us giving up of ourselves. Giving, us, giving up the things that are keeping us from truly living as little Christ. Let's pray.